Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with architectural historian, educator, and preservationist, Michelangelo Sabatino. We will be discussing modernism through a global lens, uncovering the prevalent myths commonly associated with modernity. Through his many award-winning books, Michelangelo has revealed a richer cultural context for the shaping of modern cities, challenging traditional narratives and shedding light on overlooked contributions. Michelangelo, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Carrie. So, Michelangelo, you were born in Canada, the son of Italian immigrants. Tell me what this experience was like. Well, in terms of uh, understanding what my interests were and uh, gradually becoming interested in pursuing architecture, architectural history, growing up with uh, Italian parents was very um, uh, educational because on the one hand, they had landed in this new foreign uh, country called Canada, very cold, uh, none of the Mediterranean uh, at their footsteps. Uh, and on the other, they also were not educated. Uh, so they uh, basically brought their culture, their heritage was filtered through the lens of popular culture, uh, vernacular, uh, which is basically design that was produced by non-trained architects, uh, artists. And so on the one hand, it was also being somewhat of an outsider in Canada because my parents were, of course, Italian, identified partially with Italy, uh, but also with this country in which I was born, Canada. And so being somewhere in and out, I think also piqued my curiosity, you know, about what it is, what does it mean to be a modern citizen? Uh, and how do we negotiate different cultural, political, social realities based on our own heritage? Um, and I'll say one thing too, um, Canada during the late 60s, thanks to the then Prime Minister, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, advocated for a multicultural experience. That is, it was very much anti-melting pot as had been uh, sort of pursued in America. And so the kind of hyphenated identity, Italo-Canadian or German-Canadian or, you know, Cuban-Canadian was not seen as anything that would diminish one's uh, cultural identity, but rather uh, something that would enhance it. So I came out of that kind of context where it was okay to, and actually 
uh, encouraged to speak multiple languages, uh, encouraged to look at um, different countries while remaining firmly in one's own. Interesting. And when I hear you speak about it, it's about not being either or. It's really about being both. Um, so I think it's a more kind of embracing view uh, about uh, cultural identity, which which I think, interestingly enough, comes through in your in your work and in your research, which uh, we're going to be talking about in this interview. So you have lectured and uh, written widely, Michelangelo, on a topic on the topic of contemporary architecture and design. And your work as a scholar explores topics including modern architecture and its cultural heritage and modernism through what I would say is a broader, more encompassing global lens. So from your perspective, Michelangelo, what does it mean to be modern? Thank you, Carrie. Yes, uh, there's this uh, story uh, that Isaiah Berlin speaks about. He writes about foxes and hedgehogs. Uh, that is, there's uh, artists or scholars that or philosophers that write uh, about one thing their entire lives, and that would be the hedgehog. And there's others that, that continually uh, write and think in different directions, and that would be the fox. Uh, I think of those two, I would uh, identify myself as a fox because uh, although I have been singularly focused on uh, the 20th century uh, and trying to figure it out, uh, the modern um, uh, architecture and the built environment, uh, I have also, perhaps simply because I've moved to different cities and countries uh, and had to engage with different uh, heritage uh, of these countries, I've also been interested in a variety of different cities and individuals, architects primarily, that have shaped those cities. So um, so it's very much thinking there's my colleagues, perfectly respectable, that might, you know, dedicate their entire lives to writing about Le Corbusier, the great uh, uh, French-Swiss architect, whereas uh, myself, um, I've written about Houston, Chicago, New Harmony, where I'm in uh, right now uh, for uh, a lecture later this afternoon, Indiana, um, and uh, Turin and, and uh, Italy. So I think that by exposing ourselves to new contexts, we also are able to push back against some of the founding myths of modernity. It, back to the umbrella of this conversation today, you know, when we started in the late 20s and 30s, um, uh, mainly in reaction to the rise of scary nationalism that was surfacing in Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, but of course, fascist Italy, there was uh, an interest in so-called international style architecture. That is uh, identifying a language, a uh, visual language, spatial language, a structural language that could uh, be shared amongst citizens of the world. Now, that is a, it was a very beautiful idea uh, uh, in terms of um, how it enabled architects to dialogue with each other. There's the famous CIAM, the Congrès International d'Architecture Moderne, which brought together all these different architects and said, okay, we come from different countries, but what do we have in common? So out of that discussion was born the international style. However, 
during those years, because modern architecture was still uh, in fiat, in becoming, it was hard to take, have a perspective and see within that international style architecture, how many varieties, how many uh, specific responses to climate, to context, uh, were embedded into these trajectories. Like, even if you take the great Le Corbusier, um, who, you know, we associate with the Villa Savoie uh, or um, um, other important uh, uh, buildings, if you uh, scrape a little bit under the surface, you uh, see or learn about Le Corbusier's deep interest in the Mediterranean, his interest in flat roofs, rubble walls. You know, uh, he designed the uh, country house of Madame de Montreux, which was actually the patroness that established uh, Siam. So, so even within these giants of modernity, if you begin to analyze them carefully, you will see that there are specif- there is specificity. And so that's what I'm interested in. You know, on the one hand, you have universal uh, ideas. And on the other, you have uh, locally generated, regionally generated responses and finding some beautiful uh, synthesis between those two poles, I think it makes interesting architecture, landscape and and more. It's interesting. So I, I guess that could be one of the myths, right? The myths that um, modernity as seen through, let's say, the lens of the international style is viewed as any universal language. But in fact, you're making an argument that it also is about um, responses to place, which makes uh, the language of architecture more specific. But maybe it wasn't convenient for that message to go out early. Um, The reason I say that is because if it's more specific and it's drawing on a region and on a culture, then it's probably also tapping into certain traditions that may have gone against, you know, what those early modernists wanted to do. But Maybe we could elaborate a little bit more because you do say that there are several myths associated with modernity. I think you pointed to one now, right? The difference between the universal versus the specific. Are there any more that you would highlight for our listeners? Well, uh, this gets us a little bit more complicated. And maybe, though, it has some echoes into our contemporary um tensions uh and political tensions between left right center um and so there's this idea that somehow the international style was a kind of uh left-wing response to um the excesses of bourgeois culture and so uh, it was uh, seeking to, for example, in the case of the the home, it was seeking to provide uh, design, you know, these proponents, whether it's Ernst Mai or even Le Corbusier, seeking to um, design multifamily houses for the uh, working class. Um, well, absolutely, that was a huge component. But we also know that the modern movement, international style modern movement, uh, also was at its best, or uh, perhaps most experimental, when uh, it was dealing with uh, high-end um, single-family houses uh, that provided um, resources for the architect um, to be able to experiment. If you think of perhaps the uh, Villa Tugendat by Mies van der Rohe, um, which you know was an absolute masterpiece, but it was dripping with you know uh, 
expensive materials, you know, marbles and polished chrome and large expanses of glass. Um, and so um, in order to push that experiment, uh, Mies, thanks to his clients, right, was able to do that. And, and that is also just to stay within uh, Mies, uh, you know, when he was commissioned by Dr. Edith Farnsworth to do a uh, weekend house for her just outside of Chicago, and that became a celebrated icon of the modern uh, uh, in the U.S., but also globally. Um, you know, he went in, he came, he encountered some problems because, you know, she had a budget and uh, and uh, he, he didn't meet that budget, you know. And so, and it became this, you know, jewel of a kind of a minimalist box and steel and glass and travertine uh, incredibly advanced from the point of view of, um, you know, both the structure and space, uh, but it was also very expensive. So back to the myth of modernity or myths of modernity, you know, the idea that you only needed to work for a kind of the, the state or you needed to uh, do um, work on behalf of the working class, the underserved, that was certainly one of the thrusts and an important one. But what I'm saying is that if you uh, go a little bit uh, deeper, you will begin to see that there was much more variety in terms of the clients, the patrons that sort of generated the uh, some of the most important examples of modern architecture that we uh, see today. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that you make. You know, again, when you when you scratch the surface and you go a little bit deeper in any subject, you know, rea you realize that it is more nuanced than what it appears to be on the surface. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there were the great um, some of the great works of these early modernist architects were done by extraordinary not just clients but patrons that were really looking to produce works of architecture that would expand the boundaries of the thinking about uh, space and architecture of the time. Um, so I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, well, perhaps we can continue to delve into the question of these themes in greater detail through a discussion of three key cities that have been important in your work, and those are Turin, Houston, and Chicago. And so one of your um, more recent books is entitled Carlo Molino, Architect and Storyteller, and you co-wrote that book with Napoleone Ferrari. Can you describe for our listeners who was Carlo Molino? And how did his work contribute to the making of modern Turin? Great. Well, that was a, a, a beautiful experience. Uh, and it was actually through COVID that we finalized the book. So thank God for FaceTime uh, and, uh, you know, uh, to collaborations across the ocean. Um, so Carlo Molino was this designer architect. Um, he is uh, often perceived as the bad boy of Italian uh design. Uh, recently, one of his chairs sold for $466,000, like about two or three weeks ago. And then about two or three years ago, one of his tables sold for $6.3 million. Uh, so back, that's a perfect way to, you know, latch on to what we were talking about just uh, minutes ago about clients and affluence and uh, multiple versions of uh, the modern, you know, he uh, was someone that um, 
uh, was trained as an architect. His father was a civil engineer. And so they basic, he basically was uh, a bourgeois sort of affluent. And so he uh, pursued projects like interiors or uh, uh, design objects. He wasn't, uh, while he had, you know, especially in the latter part of his life, major buildings, he was not the kind of architect that was, you know, more typical for Italy that made their career working on behalf of the public, you know, uh, 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 social housing or uh, uh, the like. And, and you know, that what made him difficult to be accepted by the many of the critics and the historians of Italian modernism, because he was uh, a little bit on the edge, you know, uh, and Turin being this amazing city, just uh, uh, south, of, part, uh, south of the Alps. Um, and it was also not the, you know, typical sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, city associated with the height of the Renaissance. But what it did have is this incredible legacy of Baroque architecture. Uh, so here you had Molino looking to Baroque architecture, and also because the Alps were nearby, he was very interested in vernacular architecture. That is, when I say vernacular architecture, I'm referring to <clears throat> sort of buildings that were sort of put together uh, by uh, uh, masons, by craftspeople um, that were not designed by architects and that were basically utilitarian buildings, right? Like they were grain storage buildings, uh, they were barns. Uh, and he was tremendously interested in these uh, buildings because they had intrinsic qualities, both material qualities <clears throat> and also, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, spatial qualities. But he wasn't just going there, drawing them, photographing them, and then copying them. He was transforming them. Right. So he was always hit one of his famous uh, uh, buildings that he was published extensively in the U.S. in the immediate World War II was this ski slope, um, the ski station uh, in Lago Nero, uh, which is uh, the Alps um, uh, just north of Turin. And basically um, it's a, a hybrid between uh, this vernacular buildings, typical they found in that part of uh, the world. And then the sort of amoebic kind of Le Corbusier um, uh, cantilever terrace that is grafted onto the building. So um, so he was an incredible uh, uh, sort of creative force that, and he drew on the traditions that were found in Turin, but both high and low. And so both classical uh, traditions and specifically the Baroque and also the vernacular tradition uh, that is the architecture of the people. Do you think it was, um, because he isn't the only figure, I think you bring him to light and he isn't perhaps as well known as some of the uh, modernist architects that you were talking about earlier, like Le Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe. Um, so what do you think allowed him to have this approach towards uh, thinking and designing architecture during that period. Right. Well, the title of the book is Carlo Molino, Architect and Storyteller. So he was <clears throat> someone that uh, was steeped in literary uh, culture, uh, and he was uh, not uh, an architect that 
bought into another one of the modernist myths, maybe that's the third, that uh, modern architecture should be primarily a response to function. Um, and so, uh, indeed, he uh, was very much a responsible designer that he, you know, uh, if his clients had a need, uh, he responded to that need, but he also didn't feel that that um, functional response needed to be deprived of a, uh, an, a, an enormous creative um, energy that he could bring to that. So for example, a chair, you know, you could design, he designed some of the most beautiful organic uh, chairs during the forties, uh, fifties. Um, and so these chairs, you know, you would sit on them, but the difference is that when you sat in them, you began thinking that you were, um, you know, uh, on this living thing that somehow was going to wake up and uh, engage you. So it wasn't just, uh, you know, a, uh, a stool that you were sitting on and that you remained indifferent to, but you, you cannot remain indifferent to his, uh, his uh, designs, you know? And so, so the storytelling component, he wanted you to sort of um, your imagination to soar uh, in the minute which you saw his buildings and, and also objects, you experienced them. Um, and so many architects did that too, but um, he had a particular um, sort of autobiographical dimension to what he did. Um, so I don't know if that uh, satisfies uh, your, uh, no, your it answer. does. It does. I, I also think that generation of um, designers in particular and architects were still this kind of transitional generation where they, they were still um, taught in schools of architecture based on a kind of traditional methodology. So they knew their histories and they embraced, you know, tradition, but they also uh, were the um, kind of, uh, they were able to receive and 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 be part of this modern thinking, let's say post nineteen twenty. So I think in the hands of the best architects, they were able to really kind of like Carlo Molino. They were able to bring these worlds together, you know. And so going back to the first question that we talked about, um, it was more about. Um, it wasn't about either or, like you cannot look at Baroque architecture or you can only look at vernacular architecture or you can only produce international style work. No, it was about both, you know? And so I think that's what makes the work of architects like Carlo Molino uh, richer. So I, I think I think you did answer that. Um, and maybe we can, we can, can, I'm sorry, did you want to say something? Nicolai? Yeah, one last thing uh, about that. You know, it's very important to stress that they took these different strands uh, that they discovered and they radically transformed them. This was very different from, say, 19th century historicism, where they would have, um, you know, a, a Renaissance facade that they would just copy, you know, literally copy from the pattern books, or they would have a, a neo-Gothic facade that they would copy. So what's really key to remember about a figure like Molino is that although you can, if you look carefully, you can identify the uh, sources, his product was uh, highly transformative. 
Yes. Yes. I think you were sort of clear in describing that to us and to our listeners. And for those that are in the audience that have never heard of Carlo Molino, I would encourage you to look into the work, travel to Turin, or also, you know, to really um, uh, go out and purchase uh, your book on on uh, on Carlo Molino. And, and I think they could probably find you through your own website, correct, Michelangelo? If someone wanted to do a little bit more research on this. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, some YouTube uh, lectures. We lectured at Yale on this topic. And uh, absolutely. And and as you said, uh, my hope is that, um, you know, folks will uh, venture up to Turin. I know that Rome and uh, Florence tend to, uh, you know, be the favorites or Venice, of course. But uh, Turin has a real important role to play in the history of Italian art, um, especially modern. Uh, so uh, I encourage you to do that. And I, I don't get uh, extra cash from the Tur Turin uh, Tourism uh, Agency for suggesting this. <laughs> No, and I, I would I would echo that recommendation. So we are basically coming up uh, to the break. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we will continue our conversation on modernism in a broader global context with architectural historian Michelangelo Sabatino. Join us in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Music. 
Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architectural historian Michelangelo Sabatino. Michelangelo, you've had a um, very fruitful career uh, as a scholar and as an educator, and you taught history and theory of architecture at the University of Houston prior to arriving at the Illinois Institute of Technology, where you are currently a professor and where you direct the PhD program. Uh, While you were in Houston, you wrote a book entitled Making Houston Modern, The Life and Architecture of Howard Barnstone. Can you um, elaborate for our listeners who was Howard Barnstone and what compelled you to write a book about him when telling the story of modern Houston? Great. Thank you, Gary. Uh, So, as I mentioned early on, you know, I was born in in Toronto, Canada, and Italian parents. Uh, and so living in different uh, cities, my first uh, job after training in Italy and then Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, uh, my first job as an assistant professor was uh, in Houston. And so when I arrived, you know, Houston is not typically on everyone's radar. In fact, the only thing that I knew about Texas was that somewhere uh, J.R. and Sue Ellen were uh, to be found. Uh, but other than that, I was not steeped in anything Texan. Uh, and so it was quite an interesting experience because when I arrived, of course, I discovered that there was a deep interest in modern and contemporary architecture that had uh, been fueled by you know, the access to international money patronage, uh, thanks to uh, what was then the dominant industry, which oil. So uh, there was an incredible uh, uh, diversity of clients. Um, and, and primarily, the the lead patrons um, uh, were the uh, John and Dominique Demenil that uh, had, for many of you, perhaps, uh, you know, the work of Renzo Piano's uh, Manil collection in Houston, which is perhaps one of his most famous. <clears throat> and so through the Demonils, I began to uh, discover this other figure, Howard Barnstone, who was a Yale tra- trained architect, uh, and that had begun to uh, be part of their milieu together with Philip Johnson. Um, and so he intrigued me because basically he took many of the lessons from Mies van der Rohe, that is this idea of the one-story pavilion, steel and glass, relationship with landscape, but he um, uh, adapted it first through the lens of Philip Johnson, who was also a Mies early on student, and then secondly, through the lens of the specific sort of muggy golf climate that is Houston. So there was a circulation of ideas uh, and association with the modernism of Mies as being cosmopolitan, right? Uh, And the presence of a series of international clients that were in the oil industry. So Barnstone uh, began to uh, design single family houses, but he also went on to design um, institutional buildings. He did not uh, design any tall buildings, uh, which is maybe the cliche of like uh, the greater visibility uh, amongst architects is when they have 
designed you know tall buildings for the skyline of a city. He did not. He stuck to the ground, uh, but he brought a sort of uh, a creative uh, sensitivity to interpreting the lessons of the of the different generation of modernism that was Mies, right? So this is also back to the myths of modernity. You know, m- the modern is not a static thing. You know, the modern movement uh, continued to evolve. In fact, there's this famous book by Charles Jenks that's called Modern Movements in Architecture. And that was published in the early 70s. And he specifically with that book responded polemically to his uh, teachers, Nikolaus Pevsner's book, Modern Movement, the modern movement, pioneers of the modern movement, where modern movement was just singular, right? And then he said, no, we don't have a modern movement. We have modern movements, right? Plural, right? And so Barnstone was one of those architects that was able to uh, um, also uh, expand what it is to be modern in response to clients and context. Well, you know, it's similar to Carlo, your book on Carlo Molino. What I see is you're tapping into important regional figures um, and highlighting their work so that you can once again provide a more, uh, a broader, more nuanced definition of what it means to be modern. But in your answer, you also spoke about the de Manils, right? And the maybe the importance of clients and patronage in the development of a work of architecture, be it, you know, modern or historical. Um, I wonder if there would be anything more in your research um, that you might like to say about the role of the client in the development of a work of architecture. Right. Well, you know, as we see from today, for example, you know, if we look at our uh, cities and we see how many architects are being commissioned? Let's remain in the realm of the single family house. You know, compared to the enormous possibilities of uh, seeking out architects to design houses, it seems that the builders are getting the, uh, you know, uh, upper hand on that. So, uh, so the question is, what leads clients to sort of be interested in offering opportunities for architects to really push uh, the envelope uh, to design uh, not for, you know, only mundane needs, but to think very, you know, uh, proactively about excellence, right? Uh, And so we need clients like that, whether it's uh, for a single family house or developers, you know, developers through uh, uh, multi-unit houses or tall buildings or, you know, developers can still play and should play a huge uh, uh, proactive role in pursuing excellence. Um, I'll give you one example here. Um, I'm in New Harmony just to give a lecture later today, but the the great figure here was Jane Blaffer Owen, who was an oil heiress from Houston, and she married the great grandson of uh, Robert Owen. And so fast forward, she comes to New Harmony, she commissions a masterpiece, uh, Philip Johnson's Roofless Church. And then through her involvement, this was uh, in the late 50s, and then through her involvement in establishing Historic New Harmony, uh, Richard Meyer is commissioned to do this amazing Athenaeum, which is one of his early major public works, 
Um, and uh, so um, here we have uh, a town uh, in the cornfields. In fact, uh, my book that I co-authored with Ben Nicholson is called Avant-Garde in the Cornfields, Architecture, Landscape and Preservation. So you have in the middle of nowhere, you have these exquisitely refined buildings. So back to the client, vision, uh, and also perhaps willingness to take chances because uh, without someone thinking outside of the box, and I know this is often used as a metaphor in architecture, but uh, it also should be used as a metaphor for developers. You know, they also have to work hand in hand with architects to make sure the quality of our cities um, uh, is enhanced from the single family house to the multi uh, scale interventions. Yes, agreed. Agreed. Um, Michelangelo, you now call Chicago your home. So you have been in many cities and wherever you land, you seem to be particularly curious about the place. And then soon after a book emerges. So <laughs> maybe the trilogy of books that we're going to be focusing on, the third one would be um, your book entitled Modern in the Middle. Chicago Houses from 1929 to 1975 that you co-wrote with Suzanne Benjamin. Um, and again, this book falls in line with the themes that we've been discussing in this conversation. Um, so Michelangelo, what does it mean to be modern in the middle? Great. Yes. Uh, this was, a, as you mentioned, absolutely, you know, when I get to a new city, uh, I begin to look around and and say, well, how might I learn about that city? And how might I be also of service? Because as an academic, you know, an educator, um, I see my role in a, as a researcher, you know, and a preservationist, I see my role not only as someone who writes books, but also as someone that kind of uh, trains attention to uh, overlooked themes that um, I think are of interest, not only to a specialized audience, but uh, also to, um, you know, broader audience. And in the case of Chicago, you know, I don't know if the, uh, the folks that are joining us today will agree, but what, what do you think of Chicago when you think, when you say Chicago? Well, I think most people think about tall buildings and the lakefront, right? Um, but that's great. Uh, and in fact, there's plenty of amazing tall buildings, but as we know, that's not the only part of the city. And so my interest was in uh, narrating the story of the modern house in Chicago. And to be uh, honest, uh, it was also a bit of serendipity because, and we'll all explain that a little bit later, uh, my partner and I had purchased a modern house of 1939. And basically, as we were trying to um, identify a preservation plan, we were starting to do research about what were comparable buildings of the period. And so <clears throat> that led to uh, us actually running into uh, another architectural historian, Susan Benjamin, and, and we began to talk and she too was interested in doing a book that would span, you know, the, the late twenties to the seventies about the modern house. So we joined forces. Um, and so what really emerges out of this book is how you know, for all of you who have been to Chicago, you know that the two giants in the room are on the one hand, Frank Lloyd Wright, 
you know, with his home and studio, and of course, his famous Roby house. And on the other hand, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who arrived in 38, went on to uh, chair the Department of Architecture, and then became hugely influential also through his tall buildings. And so I said, that's fine, uh, right, Mies, but there's a ton of interesting um, houses that aren't the Roby or the Farnsworth that merit our attention. Uh, and so um, I began to dig with my co-author, Susan, and we came up with around 50 houses. Uh, and what we learned from these houses is that, believe it or not, the suburbs are the place where all the uh, modernist experimentation happened, uh, despite those who poo-poo the suburbs. And maybe that's another myth uh, of uh, modernity, that everything interesting must be in the city. That is totally bogus. Um, and in fact, you know, I'm, as I said, avant-garde in the cornfields, we're here in New Harmony. Uh, but that is true also, you know, of the uh, um, case of uh, Chicago, because all these Chicago land is made up of all these villages and cities, you know, to the north on the northern uh, confines of Chicago's Evanston, where Northwestern is, to the west is Oak Park, where John, uh, where uh, Wright was, and to the south. Um, so what I saw through this experiment, or experience rather, is that Chicago is not just the loop, <laughs> right? And it's all these uh, communities uh, and neighborhoods um, the, to the north, west, and south. Uh, and these were very... Um, uh, sort of opened up my eyes to the diverse responses to the modern that we had. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a beautiful way of describing um, the book. And really, the the project that you're describing more broadly wasn't only a scholarly one, but it was also, as you mentioned earlier, a personal architectural project. Um, because as you as you noted, you recently completed the restoration of this 1930s house with your partner, Serge Ambrose. So I, I was curious if you could say a, a little bit more about how that practical experience complemented the more theoretical or scholarly um, pursuit in writing the book. Right. Yes, it was a transformative one, Carrie, because, you know, I've been on the board of Docomomo U.S., um, uh, for a number of years, uh, and Serge was chair of... Michelangelo, sorry to interrupt you, but maybe for our listeners, can you tell us um, what Docomomo stands for, what the organization sure. is about? Sure, it's a mouthful of consonants, Docomomo, <laughs> uh, Documentation, Conservation of the Modern Movement. Um, and it's an international organization, but it also has national chapters, and then also in the States... It has city chapters. So, for example, we have um, uh, we have the Chicago chapter, uh, and and as I mentioned, uh, my partner was chair of that for a number of years. And so, um, what the organization does is it advocates for preservation, stewardship of buildings that are roughly from the you know 30s, 40s, all the way to the 70s, and now. Uh, discussions are going on about expanding that to even the 80s, um, which typically include the so-called postmodernism. But uh, but to get back to this experience of the house, I think it's really important that, um, you know, on the one hand, we write books where you gather research, knowledge about 
ideas and uh, how buildings come together. But then the problem is if you don't actually uh, do the hard work of preserving these buildings, they'll just evaporate, you know? So uh, not, it seems like a strange thing because the modern, you know, was always at least back to another myth. It was always supposed to be about the new, uh, the new and the best and technologically advanced. Uh, but it also, um, you know, was challenged uh, because even though these materials were modern, they had not had a long run of, uh, you know, experimentation. So, you know, reinforced concrete, exposed reinforced concrete, you know, uh, has a lot of challenges, right? So, um, and so how do you go back and fix a 1950s building, you know, that's coming apart because the rebar is exposed and uh, it's uh, corroding, right? So, so back to the house. Um, by taking that house apart, uh, whether it's uh, grinding the mortar between the bricks or you know uh, stripping the paint that had you know the white paint that had been applied to these beautiful birch doors, you know, uh, it was just about getting back to what was the authentic spirit of the house. Um, right. And so that's really important because subsequent owners might not be aware of the riches and why certain decisions were made when the house was originally designed. So I always think that that's where we come in as educators and not just, you know, for our students, but also for the general public, you know, like sometimes, you know, the the motto of preservation is uh, uh, repair, not replace. Right. Uh, and so even if you think of, you know, bathrooms, you know, everyone wants to modernize their bathrooms. But if you look at 1930s bathrooms, they can be the most beautiful things, uh, color, tiles, vitrolite. Right. So this was all part of our experience of bringing back uh, the house. And in fact, the book that we're writing on that experience is called Modern Again. You know, the house started off as modern. It went through a lot of eras where people were doing, uh, former owners were doing little crazy things to the house. And our role was to strip away all these, you know, uh, bad decisions that had been made and to try to regain the modern spirit that the house had at the very beginning when it was completed in 39. Well, you know, I think in listening to your answer, I think it highlights how research, scholarly research, um, can actually be a form of public advocacy. And, uh, you know, by you looking at these lesser known houses that have a great deal of value, and then not only looking at them, but writing about them, you give them uh, added legitimacy and attention, which then allows them to be preserved in a more um, let's say in the world of practice and building, and so I think that's of of great value. Um, and and maybe I see that as a running theme in a lot of your work. You know, shedding light on, you know, sort of unknown or lesser known figures to be able to then advocate for them. Right, uh, and maybe uh, to pick up on a point when you were talking about Barnstone as, you know, regional uh, regionally known architects. I want to clarify that because, you know, today, you know, we are used to having firms that have, you know, global footprint, you know, where 
they're building all over the world and they might have uh, more than one like office, right? Um, but up until, you know, the 70s, that was not really uh, what happened. Like many architects would basically devote their entire careers to say one city or one region, you know? Uh, and it's not that they were parochial or uh, provincial, but it, that's just how practice evolved in terms of clients and especially if they were doing, um, you know, houses and word of mouth. And so this idea that the, you know, of course there was exceptions. Um, uh, Mies was, you know, building all over the world. But when you look at his, the body of his work, you know, with the exception of say, Ber you know, the Berlin and Chicago weigh most heavy in terms of what his production was. I mean, Berlin, of course, only the Lempke House and the Neue National Galerie. But so, so it's not that these guys or gals um, are were parochial or just narrowly regional. It was just the type of practice was different. You know, they uh, even think of Palladio. You know, in Italy, you know, as a Renaissance architecture architect. You know, where did he build? He built between Vicenza and and Venice, right? Uh, and he wasn't building in, you know, uh, London. Uh, his ideas would move to London, you know, with Lord Burlington or whatever. But um, any case, I hope that that doesn't seem too long winded. But I just want to I wanted to clarify that point. No, and I couldn't agree with you more having myself co-authored a book on um, Marion Manley, who was Miami's first female architect and her contributions to the discipline. So I, I couldn't agree with you more, but I am curious, given that answer in a world that is moving more and more towards globalization, you know, and where oftentimes we land in cities um, that seem very similar to the ones that we left and we move through airports that look the same in one place than another. What role do you think that regionalism or specificity can play today? Right. I mean, it must, uh, we must find ways uh, without falling into kind of cliche uh, responses of making sure that we are able to incorporate aspects of the local, but it doesn't mean that you have to just think about um, cliche materials like, okay, so coral rock for Miami or, you know, uh, or, a brick for Chicago. But for example, I mean, you could use those, of course. But for example, think about light. Um, uh, think about flora. You know, like uh, you're in Miami, Miami Beach. Uh, and of course, the palm tree is ubiquitous. Um, but there's, you know, here in the Midwest, there's plenty of crab apples or honey locusts. And so there's opportunities uh, to introduce materials um, and both living uh, and, uh, um, you know, uh, innate that will enhance your experience. And so I think we have to push that um, and learn from the modern and look to the contemporary as an opportunity to negotiate different values and traditions. Agreed. Well, we're coming to the end of the interview. So maybe in a couple of sentences, if you could tell us what your favorite city is and why. Okay. Well, I have to say that, uh, you know, having spent nearly a decade in Venice, 
uh, Italy. That uh, is a city that has inspired me because, uh, of course, uh, it also has frustrated me because as a student there, you really didn't have a car, but it enabled you to walk and to think and to see, and you could see people, hear people. You know, the great uh, challenge of our car uh, heavy cities is that we don't hear people on the streets. Uh, and so by being a pedestrian city and a city of thinkers and artists, but also of ordinary people, uh, the collective experience in Venice is very strong. And I think we need more of that in our contemporary cities. It is a magical place indeed. Michelangelo, thank you so much uh, for your work as a historian, as a preservationist, and as an educator. I greatly enjoyed our talk today. Also, join me next week when I will be speaking with one of the most boldly dissenting voices of our time, architectural and urban theorist Leon Creer. His career has been a sharp critique of the legacy of modernist city planning, and his ideas have changed the discourse of what makes a city successful by returning to traditional principles of town planning and the creation of community. Do not miss what will surely be a provocative conversation. Um, thank you again. Connect to all previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on the On Cities podcast on Instagram. Thank you, Michelangelo. See everyone next week. Thank you, Carrie. And thanks to all for listening. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 